Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. This episode is sponsored by the town of Maidstone. Today I'm looking at the history of Maidstone, Saskatchewan, a really cool place nearby to where I used to live in North Battleford, Saskatchewan. It's a really great history, and as usual, when I look at a town's history, I'm not going to be looking at a chronological history, but various aspects of its history, and let me tell you, Maidstone has quite a bit. Indigenous History The area around Maidstone has been occupied by the Blackfoot for centuries, and then by the Métis and the Cree as they began to move east following contact with Europeans through the 17th to 19th centuries. The indigenous followed the bison through the area for the most part until the herds became decimated by overhunting by the Americans and Canadians. One major aspect of the indigenous history comes in the fact that Maidstone is in the area of where many major events of the 1885 Northwest Rebellion occurred, most notably the Battle of Cutknife that occurred to the southeast of Maidstone. The battle is commemorated at the Poundmaker First Nation Reserve. The reserve itself was settled by Chief Poundmaker in the autumn of 1879, and due to the government's failure to fulfill its treaty promises, he became active in Indigenous politics and represented the Cree at various meetings and as a spokesperson with the government. In June of 1884, a thirst dance was held on the reserve to discuss the worsening situation of the Indigenous of the area. By the middle of the month, 2,000 people had gathered. The Northwest Mounted Police would come in and accuse an Indigenous man of hurting a farm instructor, but any violence was averted by the peacekeeping efforts of Poundmaker and Big Bear, both men I've done episodes on in the past on the podcast. With the 1885 Northwest Rebellion, both Big Bear and Poundmaker would be tried for treason despite pushing for peace and not having an active role in the rebellion. For Poundmaker, it would not be until the 21st century when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau pardoned him. The history of Poundmaker and the Battle of Cutknife is celebrated southwest of Maidstone on the Poundmaker First Nation Reserve and at the Chief Poundmaker Historical Centre. The Battle of Cutknife One of the most important battles in Canadian history took place not far from Maidstone and the battle site can be visited to this day. It was during the Northwest Rebellion of 1885 when the Métis, under the leadership of Gabriel Dumont and Louis Riel, formed a provisional government and took control of the area around Batoche east of Maidstone. In response, the Canadian government began to send troops out west to deal with the resistance. At the same time, the Cree, under the leadership of Chief Poundmaker, went into Battleford to lobby the Indian agent there for better supplies, as many of the Cree were starving due to insufficient rations provided to them. The people in Battleford, misunderstanding the purpose of the visit, abandoned the town, believing that the Cree were coming to attack, when in fact, the Cree and Poundmaker were there just to obtain food. The Indian agent refused to leave Fort Battleford, letting Poundmaker wait for two days. Poundmaker and his people would eventually head back to the reserve. The small police force at Fort Battleford then called on Major General Frederick Middleton, who had been sent to Saskatchewan with his force, to send reinforcements. A column of men were sent to Battleford under the leadership of Lieutenant Colonel William Otter, consisting of over 750 men. Upon arriving, Otter, pressured by the townspeople and his troops, decided to take action. Going against his orders to stay in Battleford, he wired Lieutenant Governor Edward Dudney to get permission to, 
in his words, punish Poundmaker. Permission was granted, and Otter left with 392 men to attack the Cree and Assiniboine at Cutknife Hill. Just after dawn on May 2nd, Otter and his force arrived and set up camp at a spot east of Cutknife Creek. Not realizing he had to cross a creek, his men began to wade through, making enough noise that a man named Jacob with long hair would hear them and run back to the camp to let the Cree and Assiniboine know what was happening. Colonel Otter then set up two cannons and a Gatling gun and began firing into the camp. Women and children ran for safety in the ravines, and a group of Assiniboine warriors charged at Otter's men to stop them from killing the women and children. A Cree war chief named Fine Day went to the top of Cutknife Hill and began to direct the counterattack. Instead of having the Cree attack as one big group, he had the Cree attack in small groups. One group would run forward, attack the soldiers, then rush to the ravine before the soldiers could get them. As the soldiers were attacking those Cree, another small group would run out from the second ravine and attack from behind. As a result, Otter had no idea where the enemy was or how many there were. After six hours, Otter was forced to withdraw, and as the soldiers were fleeing across the marsh, Poundmaker's fighters mounted horses to continue the attack. Poundmaker then told them to let Otter's men leave. As they greatly respected Poundmaker, they did not attack, and this would prevent a slaughter of Otter's troops as they fled. Today, the battle site is a National Historical Site of Canada and also features the world's largest tomahawk, as well as the Poundmaker Historical Site and the Big Bear Monument. A cairn is also located at a cutknife hill that overlooks the battle site. It was also at this spot that Justin Trudeau pardoned Chief Poundmaker. Today, our government acknowledges that Chief Poundmaker was a peacemaker who never stopped fighting for peace. A leader who, time and time again, a leader who time and time again sought to prevent further loss of life in the growing conflict in the prairies. The government of Canada recognizes that Chief Poundmaker was not a criminal, but someone who worked tirelessly to ensure the survival of his people and hold the Crown accountable to its obligations as laid out in Treaty 6, we recognize that the unjust conviction and imprisonment of Chief Poundmaker had and continues to have a profound impact on the Poundmaker Cree Nation. Chief Poundmaker often spoke of the need to continue moving forward. He said, we all know the story about the man who sat by the trail too long, and then it grew over and he could never find his way again. We can never forget what has happened, but we cannot go back, nor can we just sit beside the trail. Well, the government of Canada has been sitting beside the trail for far too long. And if we are to join the Poundmaker Cree Nation on the path of reconciliation, we need to acknowledge the past and build a foundation for healing and renewed understanding. And so, as an important symbol for our desire to revitalize our relationship with the Poundmaker Cree Nation, I am here today on behalf of the Government of Canada 
to confirm without reservation that Chief Poundmaker is fully exonerated of any crime or wrongdoing. I would also like to offer all members of the Poundmaker Cree Nation, past and present, an apology for the historic injustices, hardship, and oppression suffered by Chief Poundmaker and your community on behalf of the Government of Canada and all Canadians. The Poundmaker Cree Nation has long advocated to hear these words from the Government of Canada, and it is your dedicated efforts that have brought us here today to honour Chief Poundmaker the way he should have been so many, many years ago. To ensure that his legacy is celebrated for years to come and to help right past wrongs. Founding of the Community in the spring of 1903, the Bar Colony Expedition was moving through Saskatchewan after arriving in Saskatoon. The expedition was organized by a man named Isaac Barr, who had put out a call for English settlers and received 2,000 responses. It turned into one of the largest migrations of a single group of people in Canadian history, but it was marred with poor management and issues related to weather, food, and much more. While the Bar colonists would eventually get to their destination, which they named Lloyd Minster, after Reverend George Lloyd, who took over leadership of the people, many decided to leave the expedition along the way. Some of these people stopped in the area that would be Maidstone, the name coming from Maidstone, Kent, England. They were far from the only new arrivals, though, with African-American settlers coming from the United States and Mennonites arriving following the construction of the Canadian Northern Railway in 1905. That same year, the Maidstone train station would be built at a cost of $3,000, or $70,000 today. In 1907, a man named John Henry Jack Wesson arrived and would go on to not only become the first president of the Canadian Federation of Agriculture, but also the president of the Saskatchewan Wheat Pool. And I'll talk more about him later. From these early years, the community would begin to grow and prosper, and by 1955 it was officially declared a town. Oil and gas would be discovered nearby in the 1970s, helping the community grow, and by 1981, had reached a thousand people. The Shiloh People One of the more interesting aspects of the Maidstone area are the aforementioned African-American settlers who arrived in the area from Oklahoma in 1909. They would come together to create the first and only African-American farming community in the province. They left Oklahoma that year because Oklahoma merged with territory around it called Indian Territory, and the new government enacted segregation, and laws aimed at preventing black Americans from living their lives freely. Julius Caesar Lane, along with Joseph Mays, led about 12 families out of Oklahoma towards the Eldon District. One person that came was Joseph's wife, Maddie Mays, who had been born in Oklahoma in the 1860s as a slave, and fled the bigotry and racism that was rampant in the United States at the time to try to live a better life in Canada. Mays would go on to become a maternal figure in the colony and served as a midwife for several years. The colony would prosper over the next decade with 75 families living in the colony by the late 1920s. As with so many places though, the Great Depression would hit hard, and as time went on, the families would leave the area to live elsewhere, hoping to find better opportunities. 
All that remains of the community today is a log church called the Shiloh Baptist Church, which was built in 1911 and abandoned in 1940. Today, the church is now a provincial historical site and also a museum. Next to the church is the only black cemetery in the province. The cemetery holds 38 graves from the community and was used from 1913 to 1945. On the site you will find a large cairn that outlines some of the history of the colony and the one-room log church that was made using hand-hewn poplar logs from the North Saskatchewan River hauled to the area by ox cart. The original homemade benches are still in the building. More than a century ago, Maddie Mays fled Oklahoma and its racist Jim Crow laws. She settled on a farm near Maidstone, Saskatchewan, and now her great-granddaughter is here to commemorate her journey and the life she built. It's an inspiration to me, really, and it's something I can pass on to my, my children, you know. Mays fled the segregation and bigotry still rampant in the southern United States after the American Civil War. When she came to Canada, she became the matriarch of nearly 20 other families who had also fled, and she played an important role in the wider community. She was a midwife to the community as well, so, and it wasn't only just for the, like the black community, it was for everybody. So, I mean, to me that says a lot. The center of the community of New Canadians was Shiloh Baptist Church. It, along with the adjoining cemetery, is now a provincial heritage site. It's a necessary tribute, says another descendant, to hardship and triumph. They were never given the recognition for, for coming here and surviving the winters and living through all the racism. Mays says she's often asked if she's a recent immigrant because of the color of her skin. For her, the official designation cements her history and helps others know what a Canadian can look like. For other kids that are Canadian, it lets them know, yeah, no, you're actually from Saskatchewan, you're a true Saskatchewan person um, as well, just like other people that have been here for, over, their families have been here for over 100 years. Nathaniel Dove, Global News. The CNR Station. The train station was vital to every community that sprang up in the prairies. It was where new arrivals would step off the train, ready to begin their new life in the community. Many of these train stations are long gone, but not in Maidstone, where the original CNR train station still exists, housing the Maidstone and District Museum, which I will get to later. Constructed by the Canadian Northern Railway in 1905, featured areas for passengers, ticket sales, fuel storage, freight, and even a residence for railway employees. The train station was operated by the CNR until 1918, when the station became part of Canadian Government Railways. The station continued to operate under that organization until rail passenger service was discontinued to Maidstone in 1977. The building itself is designed in the style of a third-class station, which was typical for medium-sized towns at the time. The third-class station design includes a wood-frame two-story construction with a hip roof that has broad overhangs. Today, the CNR station is one of the oldest buildings in the entire community, lending itself perfectly to being the museum for the community as well and the building was formally recognized as a municipal heritage property on November 28, 1989. The Maidstone and District Museum Located within the historic CNR station, you will find the Maidstone and District Museum, which is also a heritage village that houses 10 other buildings including a school, store, machine shed, blacksmith shop, and a church. Within the museum you will also find artifacts from the area that have been gathered over the past century, as well as a 1950s station master's residence that includes a vintage wood stove, icebox, and more. Another great aspect of the museum is that it is located right next to a park, which contains walking trails, a playground, camping sites, and a trout pond. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second 
to talk about ExploreNet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExploreNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms, and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call one 866 285-2253. Fort Pitt Trail If you travel just a few kilometers north of Maidstone along Highway 21, you will come to the historic Fort Pitt Trail, which linked Fort Pitt to the Battleford Settlement during the late 1700s, as well as linking Fort Edmonton to the rest of the West. The trail itself, which can be hard to find at times, has had many people travel it over the past 300 years and is also served as the construction and service route for the Dominion Telegraph Line. When that line was abandoned in the 1920s, the trail became obsolete as a new surveyed road plan was put into place. The trail can still be seen somewhat if you go northeast of Maidstone in the Sandhills, where you can find some traces of the trail. The trail is also preserved, what is left of it, by the Midwest Archaeological Society. As for Fort Pitt, that is located about 45 minutes northeast of Maidstone. Established in 1829 to act as a halfway point between Fort Edmonton and Fort Carleton, it played many important roles in Canada over the past 150 years, including during the 1885 Northwest Rebellion, and it was the location of the signing of Treaty 6 by the Indigenous. The fort doesn't exist anymore, but there are archaeological remains of two different posts, and there are also interpretive plaques in Fort Pitt Provincial Park that highlights the history of the fort, as well as individuals such as Chief Big Bear, Fort Pitt itself would close in 1890 after it was used less as a training hub and more people began to move elsewhere in the area. Pine Island The fur trading history of Maidstone is quite strong. From the early explorers and traders who moved through the area to the eventual posts that were set up, Maidstone had an abundance of traffic prior to the creation of Canada. One such place located just north of Maidstone on Highway 21 is Pine Island. This small island, which is in the Gully Creek of the North Saskatchewan River, was the site of at least five fur trading posts between 1785 and 1795, with the most well-known being the Hudson's Bay Company, Manchester House. In 1786, the five companies operating just on the island were the Hudson's Bay Company, the Northwest Company, as well as individuals backed by companies in Montreal, and a man named Champagne, all of whom operated fur trade businesses there. Competition in the area was very strong between the biggest fur trading companies on the continent, the Hudson's Bay Company and Northwest Company, that would result in eventual armed conflict and the destruction of the forts in 1793. The site itself, located on the island, is not accessible except in winter or by boat, but a large stone cairn and a plaque were put there in 1991 and provide a history of the island. 
The island also played a part during the 1885 Northwest Rebellion. It was here that Inspector Francis Dickens and a contingent of the Northwest Mounted Police spent two nights after they evacuated from Fort Pitt and were heading towards Fort Battleford. Also during the rebellion, a steamship under the command of General Frederick Middleton stopped at the island, gathered wood for firewood, and threw confiscated weapons overboard into the river, where many still sit, in order to make room for more firewood. Notable Individuals I'm going to close out this episode by talking about some of the most notable individuals who have called Maidstone home, at least for a time. The first is a man by the name of Augustus Frederick Lafoyce Kenderdean. Born in 1870 in England, he would study art at the Manchester School of Art and spend time in Paris during the 1890s. He would eventually be inspired to move out to Canada and he became one of the first pioneers in the area. For the first decade of his time in Saskatchewan, he focused on farming, but then turned the farm over to his son so he could go back to working on art. He wanted to spread the love of art to others, and he would establish the Murray Point Art School at Emma Lake in 1935, which would bring students from across Canada and eventually become the University Art Camp. Highly respected for his artistry by his peers and colleagues, his paintings would eventually find their way across the country. His work has appeared at the Glenbow Museum in Calgary, the Mackenzie Art Gallery in Regina, most notably, the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa. He was also the first professor of art at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. In 1995, the University of Saskatchewan named the Kenderdean Art Gallery in his honour. In 1971, a memorial was erected to him, which sits at the top of Pikes Peak Hill, located only 20 minutes northwest of Maidstone, where you can see the landscape and views that he saw and loved. The next person was the previously mentioned John Henry Wesson, who had come to the area and would go on to become highly influential as a farmer in the organizations that I had mentioned. As was mentioned, he would be one of the first directors of the Saskatchewan Wheat Pool, serving as the vice president in 1931 and then becoming president in 1937 and holding that office until 1960. His work to improve the quality of life for grain growers did not go unnoticed, and in 1946 he was on the King's Honor List and received the Commander of the British Empire. In 1961, he was given an honorary doctorate of law from the University of Saskatchewan, and he would also lead the 1942 Farmer's March on Ottawa, protesting low prices for produce. His citation from the University of Saskatchewan reads, quote, His voice became the voice of prairie wheat farmers and upon occasions the voice of the whole of Canadian agriculture. With purpose and dignity he spoke and was listened to in provincial, national, and international councils. Wherever the welfare of the Canadian farmer was discussed, John Wesson was to be found, and the weight of his judgment and influence were felt. He passed away in 1965, and in 1973 he was inducted into the Saskatchewan Agricultural Hall of Fame. Arguably, the most famous person to have called Maidstone home is the iconic Canadian musician Joni Mitchell. While she was born in Fort McLeod, Alberta, her family would move around quite a bit to various bases after the Second World War, as her father was a Royal Canadian Air Force flight lieutenant and was an instructor of new pilots. She would first live in Maidstone for a time before moving to North Battleford and eventually settling in Saskatoon. Later in life, Mitchell would talk about living in Maidstone, where she would lay in bed and watch the morning train go by. Describing how the things she would see would become part of her lyric framework, she said in 1990, quote, My creative drive is based on a series of powerful images. The royal blue moment of morning, the fury of a hailstorm that I watched in wonder as it completely devastated a friend's father who watched his crop, all of his work, torn and shredded. 
the train rolling around the curve at Maidstone, with the sun flashing in deep pink from the elevator across the road. That is all part of me. I am a Flatlander. She would pay homage to her former home in her song, Song for Sharon. Sharon was a friend of Mitchell's and Maidstone who wanted to study voice and become a singer. Mitchell, for her part, was the one planning to marry a farmer. In the end, Mitchell became the singer and Sharon married the farmer. In the seventh verse, she mentions Maidstone, which I will play here to close out the episode. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Canadian History X, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.com. And again, you can visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Phil Maynard, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rois, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. You can find us on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just search for Bairdo37. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.